This is episode 19 of the Prepper Website Podcast. Today we are looking at articles that deal with how to improve seed germination, diseases that will run rampant when the SHTF, and analyzing four of the best military surplus rifles for survival. Hey, I'm Todd Sepulveda, the editor of PrepperWebsite.com. This podcast is an audible version with some commentary of articles that have been posted on Prepper Website, a daily aggregator of preparedness information. These articles are some of the best of the best that have been recently posted on PrepperWebsite.com. All article links and show information can be found on the PrepperWebsitePodcast.com. Hey, before I start uh, reading the articles, I want to give a a quick shout out to John Rourke at 1776PatriotUSA.com just for mentioning the podcast in his uh, uh, blog post today for March 15th. And also a shout out to uh, Gay over at BackdoorSurvival.com. She put our graphic up on her sidebar, and so I really do appreciate that. Hey, I also want to mention, uh, the, looking at the, my analytics for, for the website or for the podcast, I have, uh, of course, you've got you know people from the United States listening, Canada, United Kingdom, but there's people from the Netherlands, Austri- Australia, Ireland, France, Israel, Panama, Germany, Brazil, Portugal, South Africa. And uh, so I wanted to, if you're listening from one of those countries, and especially like France, um, Germany, Israel, I mean, you always deal with this. Brazil, you're having some issues there. Um, if you're dealing with, you know, terrorism, you have firsthand accounts of those kinds of things. I'd love to hear about that and uh, read that on, on the air so or on the podcast. Uh, also, if you're in another country and you are a prepper and Preparing in another country might be very, very different from preparing here in the United States. I'd love to hear from you uh, there as well. You can go to theprepperwebsitepodcast.com, and uh, my email is over on the right-hand sidebar. And you can just send me an, e- uh, an email with your accounts, and I'd love to be able to, to listen to, or to read those and, and share those with the audience. So anyway, let's go ahead and get started. This first article gets to a, comes to us from Prepper's Will. It's how to improve seed germination. It's very timely for me. I'm kind of tired and getting started late on this podcast this evening because I was out in the yard and getting the getting the garden beds ready and getting ready for planting. But anyway, here we go. So uh, let's go ahead and start reading this one. It's that time of the year when gardeners can't wait to get sowing. Starting off seed is perhaps the most critical step when starting a garden. Failing to grow seeds means you will lose valuable time and buy expensive plants instead. To make sure everything goes as planned, there are a few ways to improve seed germination you can look into. Most gardeners ignore seeds that are hard to germinate, and they don't bother giving a second try. Rather than looking for ways to improve seed germination, they will look for easier growing crops. There are three different ways you can help break dormancy in a seed. I've been using these tips for years to improve seed germination and avoid crop failure. Methods to improve seed germination. Cutting the seeds. This is also known as scarification by most gardeners. The method is quite simple and it requires cutting the seed coat. The process is needed to loosen the tough seed coat that could inhibit germination. The operation itself can be quite delicate and one needs a little bit of practice to master it. For example, in the case of sweet peas, you would need to gently nick the seed coat on the other side from the eye. This requires a sharp knife and a steady hand, but most importantly, good eyesight. To improve seed germination in this case, it is important that the eye remains undamaged. 
The main role of scarification is to abrade the seed coat as to permit water absorption. Other manual scarification methods to improve seed germination are piercing, nicking, chipping, or rubbing the seed on file or sandpaper. Soaking the seeds. This is a method I remember from my childhood. It was used by my grandfather to improve seed germination and make sure his seeds are growing. It is a good method to encourage germination and it doesn't involve harming the seeds. All you need to do is soak the seeds in lukewarm water overnight. This will allow for the seed coat to soften before germination. Once the, seed has, once the seeds have been dampened, don't let them dry out again. You don't have to keep, them, you don't have to keep the seeds soggy. To improve seed germination, try to sow them before they are totally deprived of water. Soaking the seeds in water is not a vital process before sowing them. However, I've noticed that it can speed things up and it's a process worth doing. Freezing and thawing. This method is known as stratification and it can be considered a more modern method used to improve seed germination. Some say it is method invented by the modern pioneers to help them grow plants faster. Stratification means placing in layers and it involves placing seeds in alternate layers of sand or sandy compost. Then place them where they can be repeatedly frozen and thawed. This process triggers seeds into germination since it mimics the natural process that would happen during winter. There are seeds that need temperatures to fluctuate in order to grow and stratification would be then required. A few tips to make sure your seeds come up. Decide when to start sowing based on what you plan to grow. Most hardly hardy vet most I think it was hardy vegetables there. Most hardy vegetables can germinate at relatively low soil temperatures, 41 degrees Fahrenheit. But germination is slow in cold soils. Even more, the seeds and seedlings can be affected by rot or pest long before they make it. To make sure you provide a good start to your seed, make sure you sow them when the soil temperature is 50 degrees Fahrenheit or more. You can use a soil thermometer to check the temperature and cover the seeds with clear polythene sheeting. This will increase soil temperatures and improve seed germination. Another aspect that is important and will decide how you can improve seed germination is the type of seeds you are using. If you are using harvested seeds, make sure they are no more than one year old. If you are using store-bought seeds, you shouldn't worry about seed quality as these usually last longer. Make sure that your soil keeps a good balance between moisture, retentive, and free draining. If you sow the seeds in soil that is too sandy, they will eventually dry out. If you sow them in the soil that is too heavy, your seeds are susceptible to rot. Remember that not all seeds will come up at the same time. Make sure you prick out and transplant individual seedlings as they germinate. Do this to improve seed germination for the remaining seeds and avoid waiting for the whole batch to be ready. There is no exact science behind seed growing and germination can sometimes be erratic. To improve seed germination, you should avoid sowing the seeds too deep. If you do so, the shots from small seeds will make it to the surface. Won't make it to the surface. Check the sowing requirements for both small and large seeds before planting them. As a general rule, make sure to do your research about the seed requirements for each plant you plan on growing. If you want to improve seed germination, you should pay attention to the special conditions of certain seeds. For example, Celery seeds germinate best in the light. As a helping hand, I'm covering the pots with a thin sprinkling of vermiculite instead of compost. Always check what the seed packet says. 
As a beginner, you will need all the help you can get when starting your garden. Learning how to improve seed germination will help you avoid failure when growing plants. It will also help you deal with crops that are difficult to grow and give you give your morale a boost. By using the method listed above, you can quick start your garden and improve seed germination. All right. Well, that was uh, found at Prepper's Will. Again, like always, I will link to these articles so that you can go uh, check them out and maybe even read them a little bit more carefully when you get a chance. So you'll find all these articles on episode 19 at the Prepper website podcast. The next article comes to us uh, from readynutrition.com. The title of this one is, These are the diseases that will run rampant when the SHTF. Most people like to think that if society collapsed, the most common cause of death would be at the hands of other people. They like to imagine that the apocalypse will be filled with action-packed shootouts and marauding gangs of looters. Obviously, there will be a lot of violence if society collapsed, but the truth of the matter is that violence would be a secondary concern. This is evident if you only take a quick look throughout history. During the most tumultuous time in human history, it wasn't violence that killed the most people, but disease and starvation. Even during war, when violence reached its apex, most of the soldiers didn't die from violence, and that remained the case until the 20th century. During the American Civil War, for instance, for every three soldiers who died on the battlefield, five died of disease. It's important to remember that if society were to collapse, it would be tantamount to traveling back in time to when modern amenities didn't exist. And without these amenities, there are a ton of pathogens that can kill you. So before you blow your entire prepping budget on guns and body armor, consider some of the many unglorified ways that the collapse of society could cut you down. These are the seven likely causes of death when the SHTF. Number one, superbugs. The world was a hell of a scary place before the invention of antibiotic medications. Any nick or scratch could lead to an untreatable infection and communicable diseases often ran rampant. Nowadays, our antibiotics can, can treat these diseases, but just barely. As various strains of bacteria become immune to these treatments, we rapidly, we're rapidly approaching a post-antibiotic world that looks an awful lot like the old world. If society collapsed, then these souped-up diseases are going to be unleashed without any inhibitions. Tuberculosis, staph, typhoid, strep throat, MRSA, and E. coli will become all too common. Number two, water-related illnesses. If society collapses, people are going to suddenly find themselves reliant on local water sources. And unfortunately, those water sources are going to be contaminated. It's often the cause Sorry, it's often the case that natural ponds and streams are already unsafe to drink, but the same disaster that cuts off your tap is going to make that water even more dangerous. Without running water, people will be forced to leave their waste in their immediate environment, where it will likely mingle with local water sources. This, among other unsanitary conditions, can cause a whole host of waterborne diseases, including gastroenteritis, hepatitis A, intestinal parasites, diphtheria, cholera, typhoid, and even polio. Here are nine common waterborne illnesses to, prefer, to prepare for in a disaster scenario. Number three, mosquitoes and rats. It takes all the might of modern civiliz civilization just to keep certain pests in check. But when the garbage truck stops showing up and the swimming pools turn green, you can bet that the rats and mosquitoes will proliferate like crazy. And they'll be carrying diseases that are the stuff of nightmares. Rats will carry the hantavirus, leprosyparus, 
salmonellas, and the plague. And in North America, mosquitoes will most likely be carrying dang, dang fever. Here are some tips to rat-proof your preparedness supply closet. Number four, cold weather. A lot of people will be forced to go without adequate shelter after the collapse. So when winter arrives, you're going to see a lot more weather-related ailments. We're all very familiar with flu season, but most people don't realize that cold weather conditions can spawn numerous diseases, most of them respiratory-related. Between the lack of sunlight, people crowding indoors, and the poor circulation caused by cold weather, there will be more cases of strep throat, pneumonia, croup, bronchitis, ear infections, and the stomach flu. To prepare for this, understand that hospitals and medical care may not be available or too dangerous to get to. You may want to consider storing natural remedies, herbal, herbal poultices, and tinctures to assist in these cold weather ailments. Number five, malnutrition. In a roundabout way, malnutrition would probably be the leading cause of disease after the SHTF. That's because your diet is tightly linked to the quality of your immune system, so if you're not getting enough calories, protein, vitamins, or minerals, you're more susceptible to every ailment under the sun. However, malnutrition is most associated with conditions like scurvy, rickets, pellagra, goiters, and berberry. Not sure about that one, guys. Sorry about that. Number six, cadavers. The collapse of society would destroy every kind abundance that the modern world provides us. And in return, the only thing that would be in abundance are the dead. Dead bodies, especially the kind that were infected with disease to begin with, pose a serious health threat. Without a functioning society and with bodies piling faster than they can be buried or cremated, these cadavers would litter our towns and cities and would most likely pose a serious threat to local water supplies. Number seven, disease. Overshadowing many of these medical ailments will be disease. In fact, many believe that diseases would be the real killer if the world fell apart and would dwarf the number of casualties caused by violence. Diseases are opportunist and tend to surface at a time the conditions are right for them to flourish. A long-term emergency would be just the right time, wouldn't you say? These 10 diseases could become common medical emergencies. Make sure you have a well-supplied medical closet and a sick room prepared for these issues. There is a silver lining. As bleak as that sounds, however, there is a silver lining. Prepping to prevent diseases and infection is a lot less intimidating and a lot more affordable than preparing to face off against your fellow man. In fact, it's as simple as stocking up on very general supplies that you should be accumulating anyway. Having plenty of food, toiletries, basic medical supplies, and water purification tools will go a long way toward keeping you safe from the ravages of disease. So a lot to think about there, and of course, that's you know if there's a SHTF situation. In this article, there are a lot of links. Uh, you can kind of tell when he's you know when I'm reading stuff like nine common waterborne illnesses. Uh, that's going to jump off to another uh, another article there. So a lot of uh, a lot of links there at Ready Nutrition on this article. All right, let's go ahead and go to our, the last one. This is coming to us from Skilled Survival. And this article is entitled, Analyzing Four of the Best Military Surplus Rifles for Survival. And I'm just going to warn you, this is a very long article. I know I'm probably going to have to pause uh, a few times just to kind of get through this one and take a drink of water. Uh, a lot of good information here uh, for those of you who are looking for a surplus uh, rifle, but just a lot of good 
information in general to know. And then I want to let you know that in this article, there are a ton, like a ton of videos and a ton of information that you need to go visit, all right? So let's go ahead and start reading this one. Um, again, analyzing four of the best uh, best military surplus rifles for survival. And it's coming to us from skilledsurvival.com. Would a time-tested, durable, dependable, reliable, reasonably accurate firearm at a low price interest you? A firearm also tinged with historical significance? Then I've got news for you. You're looking for a military surplus rifle. With the end of the Cold War, stockpiles of older Warsaw-packed weapons have been making their way to our shores, as nations like Russia seek to turn their old military surplus rifles into dollars. To be fair, these older rifles no longer have much military value on a modern battlefield, but this shouldn't detract from their worth to a savvy firearms enthusiast, which makes a military surplus rifle an excellent choice for survivalists, preppers, and hunters. Today, I will be limiting this discussion to bolt-action military surplus battle rifles. Why invest in a military surplus rifle? So why invest in a military surplus battle rifle versus a new Remington, Savage, or Winchester? Let's look for a moment at the brand new rifle. There's nothing wrong with a brand new Remington 700. There are wonderful rifles, variants of which are still used by our own military. But then again, there's nothing wrong with the 1903 Springfield. When it comes to sheer power, bullet weight, and velocity, the older, older battle rifles are roughly in the 30-06 power range, the cartridge of the Springfield. So the cartridge power and range are comparable to modern rifles. If you need the 300 Win Mag or another of the other popular modern rounds, then don't bother with a military surplus rifle. What about the cost? Some surplus battle rifles are cheaper than modern rifles, some are not. One thing all the battle rifles have in common over a modern rifle, though, is durability. These weapons are stout, heavy, and for the most part easy on the recoil. Many are encased in wood all the way down the barrel. Modern rifles are precision machined wonders, but for sheer durability in the muck, mire, rain, snow, and sleet, give me a Soviet Moss and Nagant. How about accuracy? Here's where the modern rifle does come out on top. If you're looking to drive a nail at 200 yards, the Remington 700 or a quality AR-15 will beat most old battle rifles. These old warrior rifles are designed to hit man-sized targets from 100 to 2,000 yards out. Of course, just because the rear sight graduation runs out to 2,000 yards doesn't mean your Mark I eyeball can see that far. However, some of these old gems in scoped sniper versions can give the modern rifles a run for their money. So here are the four military surplus rifles we'll examine in detail today. Mosin Nagant 9130 Russian Soviet Union 7.62 by 54R Mauser Model 98 Nazi Germany 8mm Mauser Lee Enfield Enfield number 1 Mark 3 England 303 British Ursaka Type 99 Imperial Japan 7.7 Jap Alright, so the first one Mosin Nagant 9130 the Mosin Nagant was argu arguably the most prolific battle rifle ever manufactured. Over 17 million of these rifles were produced over a 50 plus year lifespan. Russia has been dumping these military surplus rifles on the market for the last 20 years. 
The 762 by 54 r cartridge it fires is currently the longest surviving rifle cartridge still in frontline service in a major military force. This round is still used in the famous Russian Drogonov sniper rifles. It has a rimmed bottleneck cartridge paired with a boat-tailed 148 grain full metal jacketed bullet. It can reach speeds of up to 2840 feet per second. The Mosnagant 9130 holds five of these rounds in an internal magazine, which can be loaded individually or using a stripper clip. Surplus ammunition can still be found for this rifle, though most have corrosive Burdan primers and require a thorough cleaning after firing, otherwise the chemicals will destroy your rifling and barrel. The Mosnagant was first conceived in Imperial Russia during the 1890s, this is the result of an arms competition between Leon de Gant and a Russian army captain named Mosin. The Russian, military, sorry, the Russian military could not decide which rifle it favored, so it took elements of both designs and combined them into the first Mosin de Gant 1891. The rifle was manufactured in standard infantry lengths, shorter Cossack versions for use on horseback, then later carbine versions such as the M39 and M44 variants. In 1930, the Mosnagant went through a major upgrade to become the Model 9130. The rifle overall length was shortened down to a manageable 48.5 inches. This is the most commonly found Mosin on the market today. The rifle is both durable and heavy at 8.8 .8 pounds. It is not a pretty rifle. It is solid and functional, very Russian. The action is good with the firing pin cock coming as the bolt comes out of battery to eject the fired round. It cocks on opening rather than closing the action. My one major complaint about the action is the bolt is a tad short, though I wouldn't have noticed had I not owned other military surplus rifles to compare it. Something a cartridge swells, sorry, sometimes a cartridge swells during firing and takes a fair amount of force to eject the round and cock the firing pin. This often requires a smack on the bolt with the palm of the hand rather than a smooth ejection. Many of these hard to eject incidences occur when using commercial ammunition. I've never seen this happen with military surplus rounds. The trigger pull of the Mosin is typical Russian. It's not bad but it doesn't break near as easy as a Mauser or a Lee Enfield. If you want accuracy you have to consider trigger pull with this weapon. Keep the rifle clean, oiled, and practice, practice, practice. Here are a few interesting tidbits of trivia about the Mosin. The rifle barrel is harmonically tuned to be fired with the bayonet in place. You will lose some accuracy with the bayonet removed. The Mosin was designed to hit high from point of aim. Russian peasants were told to aim at the enemy's belt buckle, this being a prominent point of aim. The rifle sights were set to his about 4 to 6 inches above, this as roughly 100, at roughly 100 meters. I've read this from various sources, but I own two 9130 Mosins and neither of them hit that high from point of aim. Of course, I don't fire it with the bayonet attached either. During testing, I average within 2 inches from point of aim at 100 yards and within 2.5 inches at 200 yards. These results were with 50-year-old eyes and shooting military surplus steel core ammo. The front sight is a single post protected by a steel loop. I don't particularly like the sight. The post is about as wide as my target at 100 yards, not allowing for much fine aiming. The right sight is a notch sight on a slide with graduations out to 2,000 meters. Recoil, this rifle has it. 
The Russians, in the typical sensitivity we expect from them, installed a thick, hard-edged, stamped steel butt plate on the end of this rifle. This is more of a skull crusher than a butt plate. It absorbs no recoil. It transmits its beauty into your shoulder. 20 rounds through this rifle will no, will no add on re, with no add-on recoil pad will leave you bruised. It can be brutal. My first accessory for this rifle was a limb saver recoil pad. That being said, I do like the kick in the shoulder and the blast of the round, but I don't like to be bruised in the process. Besides, it's harder to control your shot if you know you're about to get hit in the shoulder with the Louisville Slugger. Most in the M44 Carbine. I also own a Most in the M44 Carbine. The Carbine is several inches shorter than the full 9130. It has an integral attached folding bayonet. This little carbine is actually a little heavier than the full-size battle rifle at 9 pounds even. This is due to the integral bayonet. It's also a blast to shoot, and I mean a blast. The 7.62x54R is designed, to, designed for long range and uses the full length of the 9130 barrel to gain velocity. This means the powder is burning all along behind the bullet, and the powder is completely consumed by the time the bullet leaves the barrel. This, in turn, imparts as much of its chemical energy into the bullet's velocity. However, the carbine is a shorter version, yet fires the same round. So the powder is not completely burned as the bullet leaves the barrel. This unburned powder produces a fireball of spectacular proportions and a much louder boom. It is loud and visibly impressive. The bullet is actually slower, but who cares? It looks and feels amazing to shoot. Accuracy is also pretty decent with the carbine, though it does tend to shoot high in testing. Also, the felt recoil from that blast actually feels worse than the full-size rifle. This makes no sense since the rifle is heavier and the bullet has less kinetic energy. Still, the bruises don't lie. Mosin Nagant Sniper Rifle My last Mosin Nagant is a sniper version. Yes, like the one Jude Law used in Enemy at the Gates. The little PU scope is a simple non-adjustable four power scope hitting a man-sized target at 300 yards would not be a problem and further kill shots were made by real russian snipers in world war ii though i laugh at the movie where jude law cuts a telephone wire at 155 meters i don't think you'd even see the wire in a four power scope at that distance the rifle itself is exactly the same a 9130 only with the scope inside roll mount I'm told Russians did pick the best 9130s from the assembly line to be used as snipers, especially the ones with a light trigger pull. My Mosin sniper is far more accurate than a standard 9130. However, due to my aging eyes, I take my 1903 sniper over the Mosin any day. Mosin Nagant Pricing To give you some idea of pricing, I bought my first 1942 Mosin in 2011 for $99. Then I picked up a 1933 Mosin in 2012 for $150, a 1942 Sniper version in 2012 for $595, yes, a $100 rifle with a $500 scope, and finally my M44 Carbine in 2014 for $245. Mosin Nagant 9130 Battle Rifles can still be found for under $200 today, but the prices are starting to creep upwards as the Russian stockpiling, stockpiles are running out. If you wonder how good a $200 rifle could be, let your heart not be troubled. It's a damn good rifle for $200. The price is $200 because they made $17 million of them. Supply outweighs demand. If you are looking for quality, fit, and finish, buy a pre-war version. 
1933, Mohsen is visibly superior to my 1942 version in machine finish and smoothness of the action, although they shoot about the same accuracy. All right, moving on to the K98 carbine Mauser. Germany first produced the Mauser, and I'm sure I'm messing this one up, Gurr 98 in 1898. I'm sure I messed, I messed that one up really good. It was a revolutionary design for its day. It includes multiple locking lugs on the bolt, a five-round integral magazine, magazine cutoff lever, and firing the 7.92 by 57 millimeter cartridge. Earlier, the United States first encountered Mausers in its 7 millimeter form in Cuba during Teddy Roosevelt's ride up San Juan Hill. The Spanish troops fired down at the Americans with a very high velocity, flat shooting 7 millimeter round, while the Americans returned fire with Craig Jorgensen's rifles, firing ballistically inferior rounds. The Mausers were deadly accurate at a distance. This led to the development of the 1903 Springfield to counter the Mauser, and it countered it very well since it was almost a direct copy. Even the courts at that time thought so and awarded Mauser a judgment for patent infringement. The payments were discontinued during World War I. Like other major powers, early GEW 98s, see, that would have been nice to have that at the very beginning of this article, so I, I can say that. GEW 98s were long. This was intentional to take full advantage of the cartridge, to get every foot per second of velocity possible from the 8mm round. The Mauser evolved in, though, in through World War I with the GEW 98, eventually evolving into the shorter K98 of World War II in 1935. The 8mm Mauser round was almost as revolutionary as the rifle that fired it. It was a rimless design copied by both the U.S. and Japan for their rifle cartridges. The 7.92 by 57mm Mauser was first produced in 1905. It's often referred to as an 8mm Mauser and sports a bottlenecked rimless design. It's a 323-inch diameter bullet of 198 grains. Velocities are around 2,600 feet per second. In general, the Germans opted for less speed and more heft in their bullets. However, there were some military ammo versions that could hit as high as 2,700 feet per second with this massive bullet. The good news is that the 8mm Mauser is still popular among hunters and sportsmen. It's also readily available online and in specialty gun shops. The K98K I own was produced in Nazi Germany in 1942. However, at some time during the war, it was captured on the battlefield by the Yugoslavians. They refurbished it and placed it, placed it in their arsenal sometime after World War II. How do I know this? Three, re three reasons. One, a Yugo code on the rifle defines it as a foreign refurbished rifle from a factory known for this operation. The words Mod 98 appear on the action. Only German rifles say Mod 98. Yugo rifles have a different designation. I can see the ghosting in the metal of the original date of manufacture that has been removed, 1942. K98 Carbiner Mauser Pricing In any event, I got a deal on this rifle. Yugo Mausers are actually very good rifles, and they don't cost nearly as much as German manufactured versions. I got the German rifle for the Yugo price. Like I said, a good deal. Typical Yugo versions model 24 and 48 go for $300 to $400. A true typical German model 98 in the 40, I'm sorry, 400 to 800 range. The rifle's action is butter smooth with a bent bolt cocking on opening like the Mosin Nagant, but much smoother. 
Although the bolt is bent, the bolt rotation is still a full 90 degrees, like the Russian. The trigger pull is firm but breaks cleanly and is very easy to control. Accuracy is pretty good once you get the sights dialed. One odd thing about my Mauser, I have to dial the rear sights out to about 300 yards to hit level at 100 yards. The sight graduations go all the way to 2,000 meters. Left and right error are typically within 2 inches at 100 yards. I fire from a rest but not from a clamped vise like a lead sled in or lead sled. In other words, a lot of the error I describe for these rifles is most likely mine. The rifle is solid and heavy like all the other military surplus rifles. It's slightly shorter at 43.5 inches length, being designated a carbine or carbiner K98K. It's also a bit lighter than its Russian adversary. At 8.2 to 9 pounds, it's still a handful of steel and wood. The barrel is protected in wood out to a few inches from the end of the barrel. The front side is protected by a spring-style steel hood. One thing I like about the Mauser is the front sight. Unlike many old battle rifle, rifles with blade or post front sights, it comes to a point which helps in fine aiming. The butt plate is steel but is curved and contoured, conforming nicely to the shoulder. Felt recoil is not as bad as a Moss Nagant. For the size and power of the round, this rifle is a pleasure to shoot. No additional recoil pad is required. To be fair, the Russian butt plate would be a better choice for crushing your opponent's skull. However, for a pleasant day at the range, I'll take the Mauser. Thanks. Lee Enfield No. 1 Mark III the British Lee Enfield No. 1 Mark III was the main battle rifle of the British Empire through World War I and well into World War II. Like the other military surplus rifles I am reviewing, this rifle is heavy and durable. In fact, this rifle takes barrel protection to a whole new level. It's encased in wood all the way out to the tip of the barrel, making this rifle a little heavier than its peers. The overall length comes in at 44.25 inches. The action of the Enfield is also extraordinarily smooth. It cocks on closing, unlike its German and Russian contemporaries. The bolt rotation is only 60 degrees, so in the hands of an expert, allows for quick bolt manipulation and a faster rate of manual fire. This was held as revolutionary at the time of its introduction, some even claiming two infields firing was equal to three rifles with 90 degree bolt actions. Indeed, the world record for rapid accurate fire from bolt action rifle was set in a Lee infield. However, it is a stretch to say an infield is the equivalent of two other rifles. The trigger of the infield, in my humble opinion, is the best of the lot. It's smooth with a very clean break. The front sight is a blade side protected on both sides by guards integral to the end cap of the rifle. The whole end cap assembly bolt to the front of the rifle, which in turn holds the front wood handguards, bayonet, and front sight guards in place. This is good and bad. It makes for a very durable design, but also means you can't adjust your front sights without removing the whole end cap. Of course, one, one, uh, of course, one, the front sight is adjusted. I think that's once. Once the front sight is adjusted and locked down, you may never have to do this again. So it's a minor annoyance. The one thing I don't like about the front sight is that it nearly, it, it's nearly the thickness of two vertical sight guards. It is very easy to look down the barrel, cocked a little sideways, and pick up one of the guards instead of the blade. One day at the range, I shot three rounds into the weeds. Puzzled by my infield's sudden lack of accuracy, I discovered I was sighting on the right sight guard instead of the sight itself. 
Of course, I felt like an idiot with some justification. The number one Mark III infield's right side is a notch design with graduations out to 2,000 yards. Later model infields used in World War II came with the aperture sights, like the 1903 Springfield and the M1 Garand. The infield fires a uniquely British cartridge, the 303 British. This round is similar in appearance and power to the Russian 7.62x54R. It's a rimmed bottleneck round with a 174 grain hollow point boat tailed bullet riding out front at a sedate 2,500 feet per second. The round, the round can still be found from time to time in sporting goods stores for a hefty price. Better to buy cheaper European commercial ammo online and even better reload your own. I invested in several boxes of ammo and a reloading die and now I reload all the ammo my infield digest. Mostly infields were produced in the United Kingdom. However, some were produced in Australia and India. Don't, breathe, don't be afraid of these. I own an Indian infield manufactured in 1916 and it looks and shoots beautifully. The infields produced in India during British rule have the same quality standards as any Lee infield. After liberation in 1948, the Indian government continued to produce infields into the early 1960s. Abandoning the 303 British for the 762 NATO round, the quality of those rifles may be adequate, but I can't confirm that. The Lee Enfield No. 1 Mark III is a pleasure to shoot. I don't attach the additional recoil pad when firing this rifle. The recoil is firm, but more of a shove than a slam. I admit, as durable a rifle as mine is, I look at it more like a treasured heirloom than a rifle to take into the woods. In an emergency, you will also be hard-pressed to find 303 British ammo anywhere, so it's not a top survival rifle. Alright, the last one, Arasaka Type 99. The military surplus rifle has been... This military surplus rifle has been the biggest surprise of all my battle rifles. The Japanese Type 99 and 7.7 Jap was designed to replace the Type 38 and 6.5 Jap. However, both rifles were produced in large quantities during the war, and the pre-war supplies of Type 38s were too valuable to throw out. Since they fired non-compatible cartridges, this presented an ammunition logistics problem. The simple solution was to assign the two rifles to different theaters of combat. That way, they didn't have to supply two types of ammunition. It also eliminated confusion for the soldiers, sailors, and marines who would worry about using the wrong, wrong ammo. The Type 99 fires a rimless bottleneck cartridge like the 8mm Mauser with a 150-grain 7.7mm bullet riding out front. It moves at a leisurely 2,600 feet per minute. I think feet per second. I think that should say feet per second. The previous round, the 6.5mm was deemed too small and the 7.7mm was viewed as an upgrade with more power. The rifle itself screams simplicity. Although actually a half inch longer than the K98K, it feels shorter to its dimensions and weight. The woodwork is adequate to protect the rifle but is both lighter and smaller in diameter. The rifle feels thin and lightweight which is at, its eight, which is at 8.4 pounds. The front sight is a simple blade which can be drifted right and left. The rear sight is an aperture with graduations out to 1500 meters. One, on, on, type, on some Type 99s, the rear sight actually folds up with two wings that extend outward. These wings have speed references on them and act as primitive anti-aircraft sights. The trigger pull is surprisingly light with the crisp brake, nearly as good as the infield and not a liability. The action is okay with the straight 90 bolt turning to a 90 degrees to chamber and eject the round. 
the firing pin cock, cocks on closing. Type 99 has an integral 5 round magazine like most other World War II battle rifles. I don't know if it's a function of the aperture sights or what, but this is my most accurate World War II battle rifle, especially when it's fired offhand or standing. The weapon is light and easy to keep on target. I've always heard the aperture sights were the best for accuracy, and this sight is best suited to the human eye and how it focuses. When tested, I could hit within a 1 to 2 inch one to two inch from point of aim at 100 yards with the Type 99. Arasakas were never imported to the United States in huge numbers, but there were a lot of GIs bringing them back from World War II, so there are still lots of them on the market, though nowhere near as many as the Mosinagans or Mausers out there. When the Arasakas were in the Emperor's arsenal, they engraved a chrysanthemum on the receiver. Most Arasakas had the mum grounded, ground off, though a few out there still have an intact engraving. A rifle picked up off the battlefield likely had an intact mum. Having the mum, or the chrysanthemum, intact raises the value of the rifle a few hundred dollars for its historical accuracy. Rifles physically taken from a Japanese soldier or captured off battle will likely be missing the mum. The mum is a symbol of the emperor and designates the rifle as his property. Out of respect for her... Hirohito, Japanese soldiers ground off the mum if they knew the rifle would fall into Allied hands. Type 99s with an intact mum can go for $400 to $600 depending on condition. My Type 99 has the mum ground off. I paid $240 for the rifle a few years ago. It's an early version manufactured at the Nagoya Arms Factory in the first quarter of 1941, pre-Pearl Harbor. Early Type 99s have a chrome line barrel, a neat option that was eliminated at the war as the war progressed when both time and money became critical. Other Arasakas known as last-ditch rifles were produced late in World War II. These rifles do not have near the machine work or detail of the previous rifles. Gone is the chrome line barrel. The butt plate is wood rather than steel. The aircraft sights are gone. The knurled knob at the back of the bolt was replaced with the awful-looking welded knob. These rifles got a bad name because, frankly, they look bad. There's no evidence, though, they were made of inferior metals or dangers to fire. USGIs did have a series of deaths and injuries in the days immediately following World War II while firing Type 99 rifles. It turns out many of these accidents occurred because the GI wasn't firing a Type 99. Instead, it was a training rifle or color guard rifle that looked like Type 99. These replicas look like the real thing, even chambering their ammo and using real bolts and firing pins. They also blew up in some GI's faces. These accidents gave their Arsaka, Arsaka and particularly the last-ditch versions, a bad name. In fact, the Arsaka has one of the strongest actions of any World War II battle rifle. After the war, it was tested to over 112,000 PSI before failure. So of these four military surplus rifles, which is the best? Which should you buy? Which is the best deal? Which offers the most utility? All good questions, so here's my final analysis. While the infield is fantastic, the ammo isn't prevalent enough. Plus, the rifles are a little pricey due to supply and demand. While the Arasaka is a pleasure to shoot, very accurate and easy to lug through the wilderness due to its light weight, the ammo is too rare. The high quality but more expensive runner-up is the K98 Mauser or Yugoslavian variant, which are a little cheaper. The best, 
the best military surplus rifle for price, availability, availability, acceptable accuracy, and price of ammo is the Mosin Nagant 9130. All right, guys. So there is, uh, like I said, that's that article. It's a long article. I loved all the information, all the history behind it. Um, I, I think they did a great job here at Skilled Survival on this uh, on this article, giving you information. So I look forward to any other articles um, dealing with uh, rifles. And uh, so sorry if I some I know there's a lot of firearms enthusiasts out there, and uh, the fact that I uh, butchered some of those names, I'm sure. Uh, you know, I have to just apologize for that right now. But uh, you want to definitely hit this article because, like I said, there's a lot of great um, videos that go along with I mean, a, a lot of great videos and a lot of other uh, links that you can link to to check it out. And uh, definitely something you, you – this is – if you're looking for a surplus rifle and you're going to some of the – the, uh, the gun shows, uh, you definitely need to, to look at this article and read it very carefully. Go over it again. All right, guys, so uh, that's it for this episode, episode 19. I'd like to thank everyone for listening and everyone who's sharing out. and All the shout-outs, man, I really do appreciate that. Um, we make it easy for you to do that on the website. Uh, we have tons of links out to all the social media sites uh, to make it easy for you to share it. And then the word of mouth, we again, we really appreciate that. So uh, if you get a chance, come by the website, theprepperwebsitepodcast.com, and drop me a line or two, or connect with me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. And uh, if you are looking for more preparedness information, and this, this podcast just isn't enough, make sure you hit Prepper Website. We, up that, we update that website daily with great preparedness content. All right, guys, so until tomorrow, which uh, that'll, be, that'll be our Friday podcast. I can't believe it's already Friday. Um, until then, stay prepped and aware. Peace.